0: Snap Production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. Occasionally in sport, you hear the term late bloomer, doesn't happen very often now in motorsport with youngsters getting into karting and riding motorbikes before many of them even hit double figures. Troy Bayliss fell in love with bike racing in his pre-high school years as a junior. He drifted away as a teen but came back in his twenties and went on to become a triple world champion.
1: I was brought up on a wheat farm out west and like many kids out there, you're either on horses or bikes. And my sister was on horses, and I was on bikes. And um, basically, we I went through the, the ranks of doing a little bit of junior motocross and dirt track. And but it sort of finished like as I was uh, you know around 14 or 15 as we moved back to this side of the the country. And um, it sort of left me for a little while. But it was always inside inside me. And every now and then I'd see see bikes and it'd make me think about them. But I had no no really idea that I was going to become involved in road racing at all until um, I passed the shop one day on my bicycle out training and seen a Kawasaki 750 H1 in the window. And I just went home and got a loan and went and bought it. You were inspired, though. You had been down, I think, for memory to... I think
0: you'd watched the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix at Eastern Creek and you'd thought a bit about getting back into it again. But
1: you had to borrow a bit of money for that bike. Is that right? Tell me that story. It was $9,999. Yeah, I bought that bike and then basically straight away, a few of my mates that had bikes down in Taree said they were going down to to watch the um, Grand Prix down at Eastern Creek. And we went down and, like really roughed it out in the out in the parking lot and I even got involved with like, you know, it was different back then, there was drag races in the night and, you know, not organised, it was just like the boys on their bikes and I couldn't believe that um, I was doing that but when I went over and watched the guys I, I watched them riding around and and I just thought to myself, wow, that, that'd be a cool job. And I think I could ride pretty fast. <laughs> I'm going to give that a go.
0: So come back a step for me. Tell me about your, your very first bike. Am I right in saying that it was a Honda Z50? Yeah, whatever, exactly.
1: whatever happened to that? Have you tracked it down? And- nah, that thing was so, so beaten up by the time my dad or mum sold it. Um, I just remember everything was broken on it, the lights and the blinkers and the handlebars were all pushed in. Like, They're a cool bike. I see them around now. They're worth a lot of money. It's crazy. Most
0: people, they get addicted to it once they, they get started. In that period where it drifted away from you, you said it was always still in your mind that you enjoyed the whole notion of racing, but but it was only that moment when you saw the, the Kawasaki that you really kind of triggered things again or what happened?
1: Yeah, it was, but um, when... When as soon as I was old enough, I actually did buy a, a Yamaha TT 250 trail bike just so I could get around on. Like, that was um, like my first really experience on the road. But you know, I used to ride it, even ride that thing. It was only a 250 like trail bike, but I used to ride it down the Newcastle sometimes to go to tech. <laughs> it was weird. But yeah, um, that, was, that was actually the start of like getting back on, on the road. I'm told, correct me if I'm
0: wrong here, I'm told a local police officer took an interest in you and, and kind of warned you about, you know, being well behaved on the road and things like that. Is that
1: true? Yeah, pretty much. And, um, you know, they give me a little bit of a revan, but I only had the bike on the road, like the the 750 for a matter of months before I realised that, you know, I was probably going to hurt myself or, or get locked up. and um, And that was it. We took the Took the fairings off and put a set of fiberglass fairings on it and headed on down to uh, Oran Park as the first ever ride we did. So, what
0: did you decide to do? Was it a case of okay, I'm a, a sp- you're working as a spray painter, I think back yeah. then. Was it let's just get a van and we'll have a crack at this for a bit of fun? What was the approach?
1: Um, straight away, it was like go and have a bit of fun. Um, but yeah, we used um, Kim's dad's van and we went we went down to uh, Oran Park and straight away I realised. Um, I went down there and, and I was going, okay, but I realised, man, but this is, I'm in the wrong place, you know. Like, if I want to do this properly, I need to get a 250 because that's where all the guys are learning and um, that's where the racing seemed to be really good. So I did the race there at Oran Park and then we went and, I went and traded in on a KR1S 250 uh, just because that was the right way to go. And then that was, that was the start of it. We started doing a few, a few of the Australian Championship rounds and then the following year we went and did all of them and yeah that was it completely completely hooked and addicted by then but I was also 22 probably then I think so it was a, a late starter um, and I it's really weird how it all works out like we've got Ollie riding now and he's only just turned 14 he had he's had his first full year in the Australian Championship and uh, I look at all the young guys now and I, see, I seem to think like it would have been good if I started that young but honestly I think your career is you know it doesn't I not the right thing to be starting at 22 but i'd learned everything and i'd had all the background it was all there it just needed kicking off one thing that sticks in my mind is
0: you getting a wild card ride at the 1997 australian motorcycle grand prix i think for memory with a dutch team on a suzuki at 250 that wasn't quite the equal of the front running guys was it that was a big moment and i can you know i even recall my colleague mark osler encouraging people to to stand up and get behind you and cheer you for what you were doing on this machine
1: it was it was crazy how that worked out because that was in yeah in 97 it was on the Ari Molnar Suzuki the Dutch guys and uh, they were an incredible good bunch of guys and we had the best weekend like it all started off weird for them because um, their rider was uh, sick or injured I can't remember now to tell you the truth and uh, they were looking for a rider Uh, Gary Flood um, who was doing the suspension on uh, Gavin Cosway's bike at the time that I was riding put my name forward and They actually, in the end, they gave me a shot, but they were worried because I had no, you know, I was coming from Australian superbikes at the time. I was riding the NZ f freight bike, uh, Peter Goddard and Phil Taton. And a
0: 250 Grand Prix bike is a different machine.
1: they were were worried that I had no, you know, two-stroke experience, but I didn't even think about that because I'd ridden a 250 production bike and that was, you know, I said, yeah, I've ridden a 250 before. (laughs) Um, And they were just all on a downer and half of them were sick as well. I'm sure they had some food poisoning going around. And anyway, I hopped on the bike and straight away... I really liked the bike and straight up like I, I was doing good and I came in and they were all excited and then I just I just sort of coasted and snowballed and just, the weekend just got better and better and uh, ended up being a great race and honestly the bike was a bit slower but it was one of the best handling bikes that I'd ever ridden and um, yeah and I remember back then uh, Barry Sheen and Bill Woods we uh, were doing some commentating there, and I, I got really good rap out of it, and it, it really made people sort of stand up and take notice.
0: You were up against guys like Ralph Waldman, uh, Max Biaggi, Olivier Jack, and as, as you say, your Caparossi. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, Crazy. yeah. I mean, famous names in that scene at the at the time. So the result ultimately was a sixth, but but you you nearly got a podium, mate, didn't you? Just to, yeah, as you come yeah. onto the front straight,
1: like every lap, I was. Um, at one stage I was in second in the early laps and then eventually Biaggi and Waldman, they sort of broke away and then there was a big battle for um, the next four or five of us guys but so many times I'd just get passed down the straight and I was a bit heavy for a 250 as well, I was like 67 or 68 kilos and, um, but the bike handled so good and I, and I knew you know, Philip Island pretty good even back then And uh, I was just, like, carving them up on this thing. (laughs) And it was such a good feeling. The bike was just working so well. Did it open doors for you? This
0: was the key moment in terms of what I think ultimately took you to the UK, wasn't it? It was was now international teams were noticing what Troy Bayless was capable
1: of. Yeah, without a doubt. And honestly, um, there were a lot of people interested. And then we found out, like, right back, even back then in 97, that there was opportunities. There was even a couple of 500 opportunities. But, like, we had to bring money to the team. And like, we didn't know, even know anyone that had money. <laughs> so, um, and we had no idea on how to chase money because basically we were country bumpkins. And uh, that was the end of that. And it was only the following week we had a, a phone call from uh, the UK with Daryl, who had a private um, Ducati team over there. And it was a pretty easy, it was a pretty easy uh, decision for us. We had Mitchell and Abby, were very young, um, but he said, OK. I'll give you twenty thousand pounds. We'll give you a house to live in. Give you a car. Pay you like these win bonuses. And we went, well, let's go. That was that.
0: And did you think this is a two year plan? We'll give it two years and see what happens. Did you just roll the dice and let's go and experience this? that, well,
1: that was it. We're going to like do the best we could do, but basically treat it as a as a working holiday. And um, but I thought I was going to go there and be competitive straight up. Um, but yeah, went. You know when we got there we realized that the guys were they were really fast and and they had some really different sorts of tracks you know, some similar to the Australian style but a lot of them were like really really got some character and some of the tracks we went to were quite dangerous as well and a long story short I had a had, had enough crashes and bike problems um but i did manage to win a couple of races in the first year and that got you know daryl Keane to keep us on board and we really um even david tartoff he came down because we were struggling that much with the bikes like playing up he came to knock hill to see what was going on and the following year we had like um, proper rs bikes and had neil hodson as a teammate and we battled really hard all year and we ended up coming out like winning the winning the British Superbike Championship so it was pretty cool and the only other Aussie to do that was Wayne Garden at the time so I felt pretty special.
0: You should do mate, it's a great achievement. Was that the first, you know going back to that period, was that the first time you ever had ridden a a Ducati and was it the 996 that that you've got sort of really fond memories of from that period?
1: Yeah it was the first time um, that I'd ridden Ducati and I have to say that before then, just before I rode the Team Kawasaki bike in 96, I was offered a, a job with um with the guys here phrases to ride the superbike but I'd already signed a deal to ride a, a 600 so it was like I should have been on ducatis even before you know what i mean and it was uh, and it it really hurt, but finally, when when I got to ride the bikes, I, I loved the Ducatis, and I was so happy to be on them.
0: I think I recall reading an article somewhere that you described it a bit. If I've got this right, a bit like a like a Shrapper.
1: yeah, no, was it? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the words I used. Um, yeah, the British superbikes bikes were they were pretty good bikes, but yeah, the first time I rode the bike, I think was at Mallory Park. And um, yeah you know a new track, a new bike, a new team, and everything It was freezing cold. It was probably February over there, and it was bleak as hell, but yeah, the team were great. we based ourselves like we 're only like a mile away from the race team, made some really good friends that we still have over there, and um, yeah, it was just on the outskirts of Coventry.
0: was this a bit of a surreal moment as well because he 's a A spray painter from New South Wales with his young wife and kids in the UK and now you're the British Superbike Champion. And I would imagine the phone's ringing even more about potential opportunities, firstly in the United States and then ultimately in Europe.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny because when we went over there, uh, it was the same time as all mad cow was happening. And we were f- so frightened <laughs> that we were going k- to kick it cow. I'm not joking. And when we, we met some of the, the people that we became good friends with, like, we went around to their farm and we were having like a lunch and they just laughed their heads off and we said, oh, well, we're not eating any meat. <laughs> but yeah, like, when, when, when I won the championship in 99, Carl Fogarty was there and he was presenting me the trophy. And like by that stage I you know you know I knew I was fast and inside myself as he was like handing me that trophy I was I was thinking I'm having your bike you know I'm going to be there one day um but Daryl the, the team owner and basically was my manager as well a uh, great friend of ours now he's he'd always had plans to go to world superbike um but it wasn't going his way right at that time, he said, Troy, I'm, I'm, I want to go to World Superbike, but it's just not working out just yet. And, and Ducati offered me a job in America to do the AMA. He said, you go and do that and we'll see, you know, the following year ha- where I end up. And, um, so off we went to, to the USA and we like, that was just basically, a, I thought it would be there for a year or two. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, that all got cut short when Carl had his crash at, at phillip island and i got the call to come and hop on the bike and then basically the rest is history
0: carl fogarty legend of the game presenting you with the trophy as you said sadly he gets injured that's just what happens in the game of motorcycle racing but it opened the door
1: yeah yeah and there's so many stories in between all of that when we're in the u.s and like when you when you pack up your family and you take off and go overseas and then then you're in england then you're in Italy and then we're moving to the USA like all the dramas and stuff we had to do for visas and stuff like it kept us on our toes and Kim was you know where the kids were so young and there was plenty going on and while I was getting shipped around there going and riding in Italy Kim was trying to pack up our stuff in the US it was like a it was it was a nightmare there for a while Mm -hmm. and we didn't know where to go and then we went back to live in the UK for a while until we realized that okay we're going to be staying in world Superbikes.
0: When you realise that, yeah. had you already started to learn Italian? Because you can speak Italian, I think, can't you? I mean, it I'm kind like, of becomes a necessary thing when you're working with your caties. Yeah,
1: I'm like a four-year-old. Um, <laughs> four-year-olds get what they want, though. <laughs> so I must be saying the right stuff. Um, but, yeah, I, I love working for them guys. I had so much, such a good time. And, uh, you know, I was lucky to work for possibly the best team in the world and, and a great bunch of guys. And right when you ride for like the factory Ducati team it automatically brings attention and it brings like a lot of supporters doesn't matter where you go in Italy they love you know they love Ferrari and they love Ducati and if you happen to be riding one of them for them that means they're going to love you too
0: did they teach you the language or did you go out and study it or it just become a necessary thing because you're oh, based in Europe
1: it was just learnt through because we didn't live in Italy we lived down in uh in Monaco eventually but there's, there's everyone there, but the general language is English. And so my, all my Italian was learnt, like, around the mechanics. So it was always the bad words first. And then, like, uh, you know, every night at dinner would be, like, it would be going to and throw. And I was put in so many situations early on where I'm around so many people and I didn't really speak the language. Mm-hmm. So it, it can be difficult, and you can either handle that or you can't. And, um, yeah, I managed to be able to be fine with it and, and get by.
0: You race some good bikes we're talking before about the the brief stint of the united states and things like that and we discussed briefly the 996 i'm told your favorite ducati is the 998 of 2002 is is that correct is that your favorite race bike why if it is
1: um well i love them all but um 2002 was the 998 was definitely a great bike but also the 999 i like the 999 so much because ducati had the spend so much money on it to make it competitive because when I rode the 998 it was a 1000cc the, the Japanese bikes were 750 because they were like four cylinders um but when when the, all the Japanese bikes started running the 1000ccs we had the, we we're still running the 1000 like the 909 but Ducati had the it was basically like a mini GP bike that is to make the thing competitive wow. um yeah so it's a like really special bike the 999
0: you kept I'm told the 998 the 999 and the 1098 championship winning bikes was that a hard thing because Barry Sheen different era admittedly uh, was able to keep some of his bikes that they were you know Suzuki's Japanese winning bikes and things but the the Japanese engineers and and management weren't very keen on handing them over, mate. They didn't like that that thought. Yeah,
1: I think, like, um, I've heard lots of stories about the Japanese, like, crushing a lot of the bikes, uh, which I find crazy, really. Uh, The Italians, though, no, the bikes get around. Um, I'm so happy to have the bikes here at home. Uh, You know, I walk past them and just... It feels like another lifetime ago, but they're, they're beautiful things, and and they've got a nice home here, and it's so, it's so nice to have them. But a funny story with the with the first one from two thousand and one was Ducati wanted me to run number because basically all my bikes they in my contract like when they make a replica bike, like I take the replica, so I have all the replicas number you know number twenty one of oh, nice. blah 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 and all this sort of stuff. But the race bikes when when they said oh okay want you to run number one in 2002 and i asked for my bike they said i said i'll run i'll run number one if if i can have the bike otherwise i'm running 21. so that was that bike and then <laughs> i've got the other two here as well
0: <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about that because uh in in numbers terms i think you ran 32 mm-hmm. in the british championship yep. 12 during your, your stint in moto gp yep. but everyone automatically thinks of 21 from your time in in world Superbikes yeah, yeah, and the successes right. the success is there is there a story there is there a backstory to 21 why did you yeah, have that
1: there is um, when i arrived at sugo the first um the first time i rode the factory bike well it was only like a week before when david called me and said troy you're coming to sugo <laughs> like uh, you know after carl's crash i didn't have a say in it. he said you're coming to sugo righto so i arrived there and um but before then he said what number do you want to run and i said i don't care And he said, okay, 21. (laughs) And that's it? (laughs) That's it. Really? David was number 21. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, We're talking about a guy by the name of David Tardotzi who is famous in Ducati terms and, and, you know.
1: David won the first ever World Superbike race. Mm. Yeah. Uh, On a Bermuda though, back in the day. Uh, Yeah, incredible guy. He was very fiery. Uh, He certainly calmed over the years. But yeah, I used to see him on the rev limiter like so much. He was like a, He's like a Jack Russell. He wasn't scared of anyone.
0: <laughs> His influence in the, the bikes and the race team and everything was just, uh, you know, phenomenal. He was uh, an
1: incredible, incredible team manager and he knew how to get the best out of, out of the riders, that's for sure.
0: This is Greg Rust and you're listening to Rusty's Garage. More with Troy Bayliss in just a few moments. In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate automotive designers, collectors, riders, and drivers I know. Tim Schenken was something of an Australian driving pioneer when he hopped on a boat to England in the 1960s to follow his dream of becoming a Formula One driver. I used to go through the parts bin, the rubbish bin at um, at the Check and Flag and get the old rose joints and bits and pieces and whatever, and tidy them all up and put them onto this uh, Lotus Lotus 22. But I just lived for motor racing, and, you know, I had a one-bedroom apartment. uh, Four of us uh, were living there, mattresses on the floor, but, I mean, that was only to sleep because the rest of the time it was full-on motor racing. Listen to the full interview with Australian Motorsport Hall of Famer Tim Schenken here on Rusty's Garage. Dois the act of spinning the rear wheels of a car while turning in a tight circle, mimicking the shape of a donut, often used by racing drivers to celebrate victory, or unsuccessfully used by adolescent men to impress their female counterparts. Some fantastic battles during your career with the likes of Colin Edwards, for example. Who, who's the toughest rival?
1: Was it Was it him? I have to say, you know, I, I had my time in GP as well, and there's a lot of fantastic riders there, but. I'm, I'm known for my super days. And, yeah, I, like, there's plenty of, plenty of fast and hard guys out there. But I did have so many battles with Colin that I'd say most people would agree that definitely Colin and myself, he was the man I had to try and... He was there week in, week out, and always really hard to beat. And we had, a, like, a pretty good relationship, considering we were always banging ourselves around on the bikes. But after all them years, we never... We never... We rode so close together. Same with Hager as well, but we never... We never were involved in a crash together.
0: So not a bad word. Not a bad word. Amazing. There are chapters, as you said before, in, in, uh, in MotoGP for you, if memory serves me correctly, a stint with Cito Pons on the Honda, and then you won that season-ending round at, uh, at Valencia the same year that Nicky Hayden, the late mm. Nicky Hayden, went, went on to win the title. What was that MotoGP bike like to ride?
1: It was... It was the bike was great. Uh, Loris and I developed the bike in two thousand and. Two thousand and three and four. Uh and then I found myself back on basically that bike which had but the development had continued. And but you know, you go to some tracks like Valencia, even on the bikes in two thousand and three and four I I had podiums there, so for some reason I was always pretty fast at Valencia and when this situation arose, which was quite funny, uh well not funny, it was bad for Sede because he injured his shoulder. But when the guys asked me to come come to valencia and ride the bike it was going to be the the final race of the thousand cc bikes before they went back to the 800s they were putting across the line that you know this is a good idea because it's the last you know the last time the bike will get ridden it's the bike that you and loris developed and i said i'm interested but i there's no way i'll do it unless i can bring my superbike crew wow. to the to work on it with me for that weekend yeah. um uh, well, a lot of the mechanics I knew already, but I wanted Ernesto there, yes. David, and Parlo. Yeah. So, so we got together and uh, went backwards and forwards a little while. Eventually, uh, Claudio Domenicali basically said, okay, it's going to happen. So we went along there and I hopped on the bike and was fast straight away again. And uh, it was on Bridgestones, which I'd been on Pirelli's or, um, all year. And, but I felt great on the bike and it was crazy. Um, I ended up qualifying second to Valentino, and everything was going so good. And I went out in the warm up that morning, and I was probably back in about eleventh. And I came in a little bit flustered, and um, I was worried about like how the back was working. And David said, "Don't worry. Like you know, we use we could have put a better tyre in for the warm up, but you put the same tyre in you're going to use it in the race." And the lights went green, and off I went. Basically, controlled the whole race, and I had a Loris behind me for most of the way towards the end and um, but with four laps to go I knew that if he had been able to like actually pass me he would have but he was he was doing everything he could but I I had the speed that day and I just watched the lap board and the last four laps felt like I was in cruise mode
0: Amazing but how special where does that rank for you in in
1: terms of the career success it felt like a mini world championship Uh, to win like in 2006 on the superbike, and then go there Mm -hmm. I just put 2006 down as definitely my best year the affinity
0: with Ducati, we talked about that before. I mean, you'll hate me saying this, but you're like a demigod there, mate. You're part of the family. Why did it all work so well? Is it bikes,
1: people, culture? Is it all of those things? It's just, a, it's a really hard one. Um, first, you, have, like, you know, you've got to get the results. So like I said, we had good bikes. I was in my prime riding really well. I got on pretty easy to get along with normally. Um, and we, we hit it off with the team uh, there were a great bunch of guys uh, every Sunday night there would always be like beer, pasta and pizza <laughs> uh, up until then it's like dead set serious but Sunday night we'd have a good time and all get together and we'd, we'd get together during the, the week too or the racing but it, of course it was just full on, it was all about the you know, about the win, like we're going to go and get the win
0: you guys are the heroes for me with what you do on, on these bikes. So it's a game that, that comes with a, a lot of risk. You've had your injuries too. I mean, the crash at Donington is is one that comes yeah. to mind. But you, you might argue that you've been luckier than a, a lot of others. But, I mean, that's the, the one that I think about.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, what did you do? You lost your finger? and I lost my finger and done a little bit of man damage, but... <laughs> Um, it's all good though. <laughs> it's all goodish. Um, what do you say? Split an atom, you could say. Okay. Um, but yeah, basically, every year you'll be breaking something, like you'd crack a bone in your hand or your wrist, or you know, so many little little things and vertebrae and stuff. But but when I look at how I got out of it, like my body's like in really good shape, and to stop in two thousand eight as a champ um, and have your body intact was, was special. But it comes with um, how do I explain it it was I felt like I needed to retire at the end of 2008 and it was because I was at the top of my game I was 38 or 39 but also Mitchell and Abby were, uh, Mitchell was 14 mm-hmm. so and we're living in Monaco and it just seemed like we wanted to get the kids, everything was adding up like it was a good time to come home with the kids as well mm-hmm. we wanted them to sort of get brought up like a bit more Australia, Australia. Yeah. Uh, seemed, it's a bit weird over there, it's mm-hmm. good to be there but I don't think it's good long-term. I don't think anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're back here. That's that. And um, the body's in good shape. And But so hard after all them years away, and then you come home, and you're so used to being racing week in, week out, and maybe the the spotlight. I don't know about the spotlight, but the winning or, or the, the competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went down to see the team at Phillip Island for the first round of the World Superbikes, I was like, like so depressed I, I couldn't I could hardly even go into the box and speak to the guys I just felt so wrong to even be there mm. and that felt I felt like that for years but I sort of you know I, I test used to go back and test the bikes and and do a bit of work with the guys and always was always thinking no oh, I should be back there racing mm. um but eventually i sort of got over that
0: it, it had been such a massive chunk of your adult life that's why and then all of a sudden, you you stop that so how difficult is that that whole thing been? you briefly came back in 2015 and did the you know a, yeah. a cameo appearance kind of thing but yeah. I, I sort of sensed in you that you loved it so much it's, it must have been enormously hard to to give it up
1: yeah it was terrible so hard to to give it up but also by the end of 2008 I think it comes in cycles and like it was like 10 or 12 years of racing every year. Mm. And like it, it gets to you a little bit towards the end. But then, you know, you have some time off and you feel fresh. And I might have just needed one year off. <laughs> but um, but yeah, when I came back and did that ride in 2015, that was just completely out of the blue. Um, Davida Gugliano was injured. Yes. And it was just before they come to Phillip Island. I just rang Ernesto up and I wasn't feared or anything. I said, Ernesto, I'm riding that bike. <laughs> he said... He said, are you sure you you want to do that? I said, yeah, I'm coming down. I'm going to have a ride. We'll just have some fun. Um, (laughs) It was pretty funny. Uh, And that was that. I did okay, but honestly, I didn't really take it too seriously and decided to go and do the next round and did better. Didn't better in Thailand, but I always used to. I never liked riding in the heat anyway. And after riding over there in Thailand in the heat, I was like, "Oh, this is not a good idea."
0: Okay. The fitness side of things for you, in you know, I can always remember you enjoying your cycling. And and um, did that come naturally to you? Did you did you have to work at that, or did you did you take to the fitness side of things? You know, in the same manner you did your racing.
1: Yeah, it just come naturally because I honestly, when you've got a job like that. We're living in an, in an apartment. That was, you know, That's my job. So the training part of it was easy. Yeah. Like basically, I'd have my training done by lunch, come and have some lunch with Kim, and then we were just a normal family for the rest of the afternoon. And being over where we were, like living in Monaco, most of the races were in Europe. I didn't need to go to the races until like Thursday most of the time. And like so it was only like 12 races a year or so, and it was like an office job. Amazing. It was, it was a great job, and you don't appreciate that until – until you've had it, and then you look back on it, and sometimes you'll think, Oh, I was a bit snotty nose there, or whatever. But yeah, it's definitely, definitely a great job.
0: The Desmo sport team you mentioned before um, is something that keeps you very busy at the moment, and so does the motorcycle shows here in Australia. Yeah. And so uh, these are ways you've stayed very much involved in the industry, even though you're not racing on a, on a full time basis at yeah. world championship level anymore.
1: Yeah, um, with the motorcycle shows, it's been really good because everybody's always known me as. Like just Ducati, yes. but now like to be involved with with all of the guys here in Australia, all the importers and everything and all the accessory guys. Um, it's just it's, it's really nice to be involved. Kim and Mark Peterson like honestly my name's behind it, but they' the, they're the drivers of it. Mark's got so much experience and now Kim like Kim's really got a, a thumb on it now too and she enjoys it and uh, it's really good. The, the Desmond sport team, uh, it's a good thing because I'm back in the Australian Superbikes where 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 I started yes. and I love going there of course having Ollie there racing now too makes sense to to be there um with a team so it sort of just happens easy now yeah. uh so I've been enjoying that and it's it's good to be back and I think the championship's probably the best it's ever been right now
0: some great things in the pipeline I think for mm. it as well it's it's yeah. really Rebounded, um, you know. There's some very memorable chapters of that Australian Championship, and yes, it's gone through some lulls, but it's nice to see it coming back the way that it is. You mentioned Ollie, 14 years of age. He's following in Dad's footsteps, or it, it looks like that, racing here in the supersport 300 class. Are you coach? Are you nervous, Dad? What what are you like on the sidelines?
1: I'm probably. It's really hard to watch. Is it? Yeah, I rang my mum like not long after halfway through the year, this year, and said, Mum, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know what, I, you know, now I understand what I've put you guys all through. Yeah. Um, basically, Ollie's been racing like a lot of his life. He started off in carts and, um, and then switched from carts to bikes. So he was like probably eight or nine when he was doing dirt track. Um, and now, you know, the last two years we've started doing, brought him up to speed, up to speed here on the, on the Gold Coast at Extreme Karting on the kart track. Mm-hmm. So I was always riding 300 with him and um, so different riding on the track with him because we're like, we, we ride hard but when you're on the track you don't, you don't feel the, the nervousness or anything like that but when you turn up to the ASBK and I see him going around the track like, with seven or eight guys like Dyson for, for a win yeah. it's like, it is stressful to watch I must say
0: What about you? Are you comfortable just hanging out and involved in all of this or are there moments where you need to throw your leg over a bike and go and do something that... that keeps the competitive stuff going
1: over the years i've done which has probably been good we've done a lot of um dirt track riding which i did with ollie and uh a lot of other guys and sometimes i just go and do it myself you know just to go racing uh the troy ballast classic which we've we've done has been good but yeah the good thing is it's kept me on the bike and uh i tested our bike the Sport bike i think about three or four weeks ago at morgan park
0: yep in Queensland? In
1: Queensland, yeah. Um, did uh, did a good lap time. I rode the bike at the Adelaide Motorsport Festival, which was fun. And here's a little surprise. I'll be riding our bike in the Australian Superbike Championship next year.
0: That's phenomenal for the Australian Championship, mate. That's the whole... You're going to contest the whole championship?
1: Yep. I feel um, I rode the... It's been a hard one. This year we had um, Callum Spriggs on the bike and he, he sort of struggled a little. He's a great 600 rider. He, he crashed out and injured his shoulder and that was the end of him for the year. I'm sure he's going to be back next year, I'd say, in the Superbike Paddock as well. Uh, also, Corey Turner had a, had a spin on the bike, did very well up at uh, Morgan Park and then sort of struggled a little bit towards the end of the year. But, uh, you know, we want, we want to see the young guys on the bikes, but after I rode the bike and what I felt on the bike... It's a long story and hard to explain, but I feel the need that I I need to ride, um, come back and try and get myself an Australian Superbike Championship. So life has
0: come, in some respects, full circle for you, so... Ah. You're going to contest it. You're back. You're going to contest the Australian Championship. As you and I talk in one of the spare rooms at your house, you've got the the bike
1: set up, so are you going to get serious about training oh, yeah. and, and testing? Yeah, without a doubt. That's actually Ollie set up there. Seriously? Yeah, he, he gets on the Zwift and uh, hooks up with all his mates on there. Um, yeah, fair dinkum. Um, actually, I'm coming back. I'm going to be very serious, and uh, that's that. How's Mama Bear? How's Kim about all that? Kim's not too bad about it. Like, it's a pretty... it's a. We've got Mitchell Cage fighting, he's 23. There's one sane one in the family, Abby. She's at university doing mathematics. Ollie's racing bikes. I'm at the track every weekend anyway. We may as well both be riding. What a
0: great story, mate. Congratulations. It's been an honour to catch up with you. World Superbike Champion in 01, 06, 2008, obviously. 152 starts. 52 wins 94 podiums and 26 poles it is a very impressive strike rate not to mention the british championship and moto gp race winner and we've learned in the podcast today that you're going to make a comeback that's seriously cool
1: yeah it's seriously um you know some people will won't really get it um but myself i'm a racer and you know that's that's what i need to do i've uh I think it will be good for, for myself, it'll be good for our team, and I think it'll be good, also be good for the Australian Superbike Championship as well.
0: 100%. Have a great season. All the best. Thanks, Greg. On the next episode of Rusty's Garage, I'm in New Zealand talking with V8 supercar driver and Kiwi legend Greg Murphy, who, after all his years of racing, has a trunk full of stories to tell. And uh, the passenger side of the car,
1: which was the left-hand side of the car, the footwell and everything on the passenger side of the car it was full of fuel. And so the, the fuel line from the back of the car somehow ruptured and was filling the car up with fuel. And um, as he did that, um, it ignited. And so the, the car was on fire. <laughs> Peter Addison grabbed the fire extinguisher while everyone else stood back and watched because he was like, I'm not having this happen to this car. This is so important. So put the fire out, managed to fix fix it. It didn't actually do too much damage because the the fuel was burning, not the car. And went on to to race that weekend in, in the Toyota.
0: Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.